Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and it is May 19th, 2023, and I'm joined today by senior TechCrunch reporter on the FinTech Beat. It is Mary Ann Azevedo. Mary Ann, hello. How are you? Alex, I'm good. I have to share very quickly that I choked last night while laughing and drinking water. And it was one of the scariest things I've experienced in a while. So like, I just want to tell everybody, uh, be careful not to have a laughing fit, even just drinking water. Like I saw my life flash before my eyes. Uh, you're not allowed to die, just as a data point. <laughs> and also, too, it'd be very ironic to be killed by ingesting a substance required to keep you alive. Right. Yes. Okay, well, that's terrifying. Yes, but otherwise, I'm doing pretty well. I just had to share that as like a PSA. I appreciate that. We also have Becca Skutak with us. Becca, hi. Have you recently been attacked by a beverage? You know, I haven't, but I wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of a klutz, personally, like physically kind of klutzy, and so I... That's something that would happen to me, Marianne. I empathize. Yeah. But given that we're all able to breathe at the moment, we have quite a show ahead of us. Deals of the week include Vice, Amorai, and Nestle. Why is Nestle on the show? Well, stick around and find out. The first major theme on today's episode is all about an acquisition that Twitter did that we don't understand, so we try to learn more. Then we're going to talk about New Limit and how it wants to take away the limits on life extension and overall quality of life. I dig that. And then we're going to wrap with notes on venture debt, so if you are a founder and are curious about how to raise capital, stick around for that. But first, can someone sing a dirge, please? Because I feel like everything in the media world is all about shutdowns and layoffs, and I'm really bummed about yeah. it. I don't know what to say, Alex. I mean, I feel the same. Like lately, there's been a lot of negative, negative news flowing and trying to keep up the positive mental attitude here. Yeah. Well, after a 29-year run, as TechCrunch wrote, Vice has filed for bankruptcy. I'm not going to lie, Becca, when I first saw this, I wasn't absolutely shocked given that I don't think anyone's really thought that Vice was in the best financial shape and that $5.7 billion valuation was more than a half decade old. Yeah, and I think honestly, too, when they raised that last round of funding at an up round, whenever that was maybe 2018-ish, people seemed surprised at the time that they were raising at such a high valuation, which is never really a good sign when people are surprised you're doing really well. So finding out that they're doing poorly or they were sort of in that decline definitely was not as surprising just because, yeah, they've been, you know, kind of trucking along, which is a bummer because they do write really great stories and they are the publication that covers a lot of really interesting areas that other publications don't. Yeah. Like underground stuff and psychedelics and drugs and stuff that even if you don't partake, you aren't interested in that way, is fun stuff to read about and cool parts of the culture that a lot of places just aren't covering as much. Yeah, that's actually why I originally knew Vice. I mean, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I watched their documentaries about going to different parts of the world that I've never been to and, and either consuming or inhaling things that were de novo to me. And it was really cool to see people give that a different kind of level of attention. But that wasn't really the core business model, Barry. And they did so much stuff from television programs to pivot to video type things to regular online journalism. It felt a bit like a smorgasbord and not really in the best possible sense. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was one of those cases where they were trying to do too much and then kind of stopped doing any one thing very, very well. But would agree that like their articles were very compelling and that there were a lot of fascinating topics that they covered in interviews. I have to wonder just how much of this has to do with what is cited as severe managerial missteps and also this culture of sexual harassment, which I found to be kind of ironic because that's exactly the kind of thing I feel like Vice would have reported on. Right. I mean, irony abounds there, but I think that when we look back to the founders of the company, what they've done since, 
and the overall aesthetic that Vice had, especially in its earlier days, I'm not shocked to hear that it wasn't the world's best managed company. And I think it goes to show to Becca's point that being a great fundraiser does not always mean you're a great operator. No. But one thing I will say to Vice's credit, I applied for a job there back in 2018, I want to say. And that was the only place I applied to in that summer where I probably applied at least, I don't know, 65, 70 places that paid you to do an edit test. Wow. Only place. That's Maybe that's why they went bankrupt. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but they were the only place that paid you to do an edit test. And you just did a freelance article and they ran it on the site, which I that was the best model I've ever come across for that wow. in my career. Can you explain to the non-writers out there what an edit test is and why this actually matters? For sure. So every publication that does them does them slightly differently, but it's a way to just like test either how a reporter or a potential reporter can pitch stories or how good they are at writing off a certain topic. And so this model in particular, you just pitch stories like you would as a regular freelancer. They chose one. And they obviously did choose one, whereas if you were pitching as a freelancer, maybe they wouldn't have. But they chose one and you wrote it. It got published on the site like normal and they actually paid you. Yeah. Which sounds like the bar is on the floor, but... For folks who are not in journalism, the bar is absolutely on the floor. Yes, it's something that you can trip right over. It's not a limbo bar because that applies a gap between the bar and the floor, which is not actually the case. And speaking of low bars, the company is being sold for $225 million to a bunch of its creditors, which is about 4% of its past valuation. Ironically... I, I was going to say, hey, it's worth about as much as BuzzFeed. And then I checked, and it's actually worth 2.25x BuzzFeed's current market cap. So, yikes! I don't know, can we get a sad trombone sound effect somewhere here? Because that would be appropriate, I feel. But let's move on from that particularly bit of sunshine and move on to, Becca, a deal die from you about a AI relationship coach. But not to help you have a relationship with AI, but AI helping you have relationships. Yeah, and I know, like, Obviously, AI is going to be a big topic of discussion in venture and startups for years, but I don't know about you guys. The second AI is in the headline or the AI is in like the email line for the pitch, I'm always just like, oh, so I have a level of disinterest like right off the bat and or a level of overall doing the same thing. But this company really stood out to me because... One, using an AI relationship coach to foster real-life relationships is just, it's an interesting concept to begin with. But then diving in more, I just realized I just had so many questions. One, they just raised a pre-seed round and it's undisclosed, which I always assume the worst of a company. If you want to stay in stealth, go right ahead. That's fine. You don't want to answer questions you're building in stealth. That's so cool. Go right ahead. But when companies want their announcement to get covered and want their news out there and don't want to talk about it, that always makes me a little skeptical that I would have questions that the company wouldn't want to answer or wouldn't be able to answer, which never gives me that much confidence. But I think the real thing here is that I talked to an AI ethicist about it. He does research at Carnegie Mellon, and he was just like, I don't even understand how this would work. Like, he's like, ethics of it aside, like, he researches how humans and AI interact, and he was just like, I just don't understand how you could train an AI model that would get all of the nuances of human relationships. Plus, like, last thing there, they wanted to focus on Gen Z, and I just truly have an interesting complex about people who are not Gen Z being like, we're building for Gen Z. We know what Gen Z wants. We're 30 years older than that. Like, it's like, interesting. Okay. I'm, I'm really glad you covered this, Becca, and I'm glad you did it with such a skeptical lens. 
and forgive me if you already said this, but the founder is a former Tinder CEO. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're saying they wouldn't even share how much they raised? No. And they went on a podcast, one of um, Vox's podcasts uh, about a month ago, and told them that they raised the whole round in 24 hours when they hadn't yet come up with the company idea yet. I mean, okay, first of all, that's just stupid. Second of all, like, this is just another one of those companies where, like, who would think this is a good idea? Like, really? I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, how can AI really get the nuances about certain relationships? I mean, this is something that, like, every relationship is different. And, right. and I just don't see how AI can really address that so, individually. Uh, I want to throw, so one, yes to all of that, obviously. But also, like, what about the basics? right? Some people don't even have the basics of being able to be polite. So maybe AI can help them learn to say things like please and thank you and, and kind of basics like that. Right. I agree that past that level is going to be incredibly hard because like in jokes in a relationship or even just a friendship or like, like ways of communication and the, the nuances of, of like how speech works. Like if I send Marianne a Slack that says K, right? That's relatively innocuous. But if I send one that says K period, that means I'm pissed. And so like there's the, all these really tiny things that matter so much. And AI to me always just sounds kind of like an earnest nerd when I talk to it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that converts well to helping other people talk. I don't know, Becca. I just, I, we haven't gotten to use this yet, right? No, no, it literally doesn't exist yet. Well, at least they went on the podcast in April. I don't think they had started building it yet, which is like, again, They've raised money from real firms, real people. And a point off of what you said, Alex, though, the professor I spoke with at Carnegie Mellon did say if this was going to exclusively focus on like teaching people how to read cues, like social cues or teaching people like those types of social skills, he's like, that actually is possible in my mind. He's like, what's the real like use case? What would be the total addressable market for that? Like not really probably worth building in that space, but yeah, he was like, everything else, he was like, I just don't actually know how that would work. Did they reveal the investors? Is this just a ploy to get money? Oh, they did reveal the investors. Oh, okay. yeah. It's incubated at the AI fund. Mm. And then um, speaking of her being the former Tinder CEO, another former Tinder CEO who is our parent company, current oh, CEO, right. is one of the backers. Oh, Jim is backing this? Yes, Oh, well, I take back everything I said. Never has there been a better hey, product. We love anything Jim touches. It is always so good. The last time, no, I mean, we joke, but the last time I mentioned Jim on a podcast, he slacked me. So, like, I feel like it wasn't even a tech coach podcast. I was somewhere else. Uh, I was going to make a joke about how many CEOs Tender has had, but I think instead we're going to move on before we get the show canceled. All right. Freshly shareholders, Marianne, are suing Nestle. Nestle, as everyone knows, is a famously forthright company. They are famous for having great labor protections in the market, not abusing local indigenous resources, and certainly not stealing from the poor to sell to the wealthy. So what's going on here? Why is Nestle in trouble for the first time? Uh, right. Well, Freshly, back in 2020, was acquired by Nestle for, the deal was up to $1.5 billion. And what that basically means is that Nestle was going to pay $950 million dollars plus potential earnouts of up to $550 million based on future growth. Well, that's where the current tension lies. So freshly shareholders, including venture firm and site partners, are suing the company saying that they're saying they didn't get their earnout payments. And they're saying that the founder was pressured to step down. And that way that triggered 
them not getting their earned-out payments. And a source, an anonymous source, told me that the founder also felt like he was getting stonewalled, trying to get budgets passed, trying to get, I guess, the company doing better because it started not doing very well, I believe, in 2021 as people started eating out again after the pandemic. And then last year in particular, with inflation and people just, I think, relying less on subscription services, it actually stopped its food delivery late last year. So the founder supposedly tried to get more money or tried to get things in a better direction. This is all alleged, okay? Right, right. And he says he was forced to step down. Shareholders are saying this was intentional so that Nestle wouldn't have to make these earnout payments. So that's that's what it is. Well, Becca, when it comes to contractual disputes, I mean, it's always a little hard to tell from the outside, but given what we do know, it sounds like Nestle bought it and then realized it wasn't going to end up where they wanted it to. And so they wanted to reduce their overall possible payouts to the founding team and, and owners and so forth. I mean, what's your vibe on who wins here? Well, I don't know who wins here because I think based on what Marianne just said about sort of like how freshly he's doing, I feel like if that lens comes into play, like the shareholders are to have like no chance almost. Cause it's like now you've got this company that was bought for 950 million that has now stopped doing one of their core business models and is going yeah. down. I mean, like that's almost a billion dollars, which at that time or back in say 2020, 2021, we'd all be like, oh yeah, a billion dollars, whatever. But like this is like a very different market. And the fact that they were able to get acquired before probably some of these issues started happening is like, I don't know if I would really consider this to be like the worst deal for everyone involved is what I'm getting at. That makes sense to me. Mm. But uh, so if this was just the founder suing Nestle, well, one, I'm never going to complain when someone sues that company. So whatever. But the fact that Insight Partners is involved with this makes it feel like there's something probably more substantive, if that makes sense, because I don't think they'd put their name on the lawsuit if they didn't really think they had a case because VCs are very averse to having negative signaling risk around themselves. So this is why CEOs really get fired by a VC firm because the VC firm wants to remain founder friendly. And if you're a venture capital firm that wants to see their portfolio companies acquired for large amounts of money, you don't sue acquirers. But in this case, they are. So that makes me feel like there's more grist in the mill Mm. than just some sour grapes. Yeah. And I think in general, this is worth talking about because as we all know, the IPO market has dried up. The venture funding scene is not what it was. It's much harder to raise capital these days. So we're definitely going to be seeing more acquisitions. And I think there could be more of this type of thing. And I think companies in general need to be very cautious before entering into an acquisition agreement because it may not always be in the best interest. Now, I'm not saying in this case that that was a bad decision on the part of Freshly, but just as a lesson learned, like for startups, just because you're getting an offer to get acquired doesn't necessarily mean you know, that's the best thing for your company. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if Nestle, if you're annoyed with how we described your business, I'm just going to say an AI trained me how to say it. All right, <laughs> moving on. Here's a story that I don't understand at all. And so I'm very glad we're having it on the show. Elon Musk bought Twitter and then took a meat cleaver to its staffing expenses, offices, servers, and so forth, and then put it under a new parent company, X Corp. And now he's buying something called Lasky, which is a job platform to help people hire And I just, it it seems so incongruous to me as a package of individual kind of facts that I'm very curious. Does anyone here understand what's going on and can explain to me why this is happening? No, I think this is the first like company acquisition that I read and then like actually laughed out loud because I was like, what money? Like what? That means like, where does Twitter have the money to buy this? I have a hard time believing Lasky's 
either doing really well or has grown much since their 2021 round if Elon can, one, afford to buy them, and two, they are willing to be bought by a company like Twitter going through what it is at the moment. So I think that's the whole thing. I was just like, I could read about this for hours because I truly just seems like one of the things where the more questions I ask, the more answers I get, I still wouldn't get it more. Yeah. Yeah. Marianne, part equity, part cash, according to sources. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, all that Becca said, I, I have to wonder, you know, what kind of position Lasky was in to agree to this deal. They had raised $6 million in 2021. And also, I was very surprised that this is the first acquisition ever for Twitter. Like, I didn't... I think in the in the Musk era. In the Musk era, Ah, yeah. okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. That's right. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're matching tech job seekers with employers. I'm just curious. I mean, what is Twitter planning to do with this exactly? Like, what's the goal? Okay, so the only thing that I could think of, I have two theories, and they're both dumb. So tell me which one's dumber, and that'll probably be the more correct one, given the timeline we're currently in. The first dumb idea is that Lasky's founder, Chris, I'm I'm gonna guess, Backy? Yeah, I think it's Backy. Backy? Has a very funny Twitter account. Very funny. Very funny. If you haven't read his tweets, just go scroll through his timeline. It's Prepping for the show today, I enjoyed many a meme from this fine gentleman. And we do know that Elon Musk is the single most online person alive. And I say that as a very online person myself, I aspire to similar levels of posting. So there's a chance that Elon was like, this guy's hilarious. I want to hire him. Oh, he has a company. Oh, it needs to raise money. I'll just buy it. That's dumb idea number one. Dumb idea number two is that Twitter may have a problem right now hiring the people that it does need, given that it just fired most of them. And so what do you do if you need to hire some people and can't? Well, you buy yourself a platform to help you hire. Okay, which one of those is dumber? And that'll be the right one. No, I actually, I definitely <laughs> agree with you on the second point, because I did think that. I was like, geez, do they need help hiring for themselves like that bad that they have to literally, mm-hmm. like men will literally buy a company to do something for them before figuring it out themselves. <laughs> <laughs> that that therapy meme will never it'll ever never get die. Old. It's so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's all. Honestly, I don't think either of those guesses are out of the realm of possibility, Alex, at all. I thought you were going to say, Alex. I don't think either of those has a shot in hell of being correct. So I was very pleased <laughs> when you said that. <laughs> Halfway through, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get shot on my own show. What else would it be? Like, this news comes, like, within a week or so of them announcing they're hiring an ad revenue-focused CEO. Like, this just doesn't make any sense. Like, I get he wants to build, like, an everything app, but, like, these two things coming in such close proximity, I'm like, this, they must be separate plans. Like, they must not be related to the X-Corp. Like, it just doesn't line up. Did you guys see that interview with Musk on uh, CNBC? Mm, I've seen all of the backlash about it, but I don't watch that kind of stuff, no. Yeah, I don't either, but I I went ahead and watched a clip or two, and there was an interesting conversation about Musk's posting strategy. And the the CNBC interviewer, we all know CNBC's perspective, right? Which is that CEOs are cool and that people getting richer is, is cool. And that's fine. I'm a capitalist. I get it. And so they didn't ask him, like, Elon, why are you posting such incredibly dumb shit? You need some friends. They said... When you post this stuff, it kind of is bad for your companies. So why not keep your opinions to yourself? Which is a slightly different way of framing the question. And Musk kind of like paused for a while. And he was like, uh, I'm summarizing here heavily. Uh, I don't care if it costs me money. And my thought there was one, okay, shout out, honestly. But two, like other people work for him. And so like, it would be tough if someone, if my boss was like, I'm going to do whatever I want, even if it costs me money, because it impacts my livelihood at that point as well. So... Uh, I just, I kind of left not liking him more. And I kind of went in there hoping to find something to 
to, uh, and you, yeah, you didn't think that was possible, huh? To like not like him well, more. Uh, no, no, no I, I was trying to find <laughs> something positive because I feel like right. Musk does more stuff than post on Twitter and, and run the company poorly. He, you know, I watch SpaceX launches. I like space. I see Teslas in my neighborhood. I'm glad we're moving to EVs as a person who lives on this planet. But I just I didn't get anything from it that felt human, if you will. And so maybe mm-hmm. actually going back, this joke's gonna work all show. Maybe he could use some AI training on how to better handle relationships and interpersonal communication because <laughs> I don't think that that went the way he wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Good point. Ugh. All right. Speaking about billionaires, what if we kept them alive until the end of time? That's the new thing from a company called New Limit, which is uh, co-founded by some other rich people. And they're all about keeping people alive longer via epigenetically reprogramming cells. Marianne, I presume you are in favor of this and cannot wait to line up and give them your hard-earned money. I don't know. I was really intrigued by all of this. Co-founded by Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong was not what I expected to read. It's just like a big pivot now going from Coinbase to this? Yeah. I'm sure he could draw a parallel if you asked him. (laughs) I feel like crypto, they can find a connection (laughs) no matter what. Well, I mean, so Connie Loises, who interviewed Brian Armstrong and another one of the co-founders and pressed them on the who's actually in charge, who's actually running this thing, why have you raised so much money? And it turns out it's a loose collection of people. There's no current hard CEO, but there's a lot of smart people and a lot of rich people kind of in the room, if you will. And they've raised access to a lot of capital that they will be able to draw down on, it seems, over time. And she asked him, you know, like, hey, is this just the standard once you're a billionaire, you don't ever want to die thing? And he kind of danced around that. But I appreciated that she asked the questions that I I would have tried to put forward. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, my parents are getting older, you know, 70-ish. And if there was a way that I could maybe not extend their life forever, but provide them with more healthy and happy years. I'm not going to lie. I'm in favor of that. And it would be cool if we could reprogram ourselves a little bit to live healthy lives longer. There's a lot of folks that I want to keep. And so I'm sympathetic to the mission, even if it does strike me as a slightly odd founding quad quad group. Yeah, no, I feel the exact same way. Because it's like the thought of working on an issue this big. And of course, every time I like go to crap on a company like this, I always am like, we at least still have people trying to hit the moonshots and like, that's what you want to see in innovation. So like, it's definitely not all negative. Like it's a great, like you said, a great mission to work toward. But when I read it, my first thought was just like, "Uh uh-oh, the billionaires are trying to live longer again. Like (laughs) we've done this before. And I kind of just want some other kind of group to try to work on this issue I think is okay. where I'm at with it. But who else is going to put the money into it, right? I mean, like, I don't want to get into a large conversation about the modern pharmaceutical industry and how the American healthcare system is set up and the kind of inverse incentives we have to deal with there. But like, you know. TLDR, bad. <laughs> thank you. That's actually a great summary. Bad, period. And you're done. Who's going to put the money into this stuff? So it's going to have to be the billionaires, I think, or maybe the merely centimillionaires who can afford to fund what's probably a boondoggle, right? A lot of this stuff's going to fail, but at least you're right. They're trying to hit the moonshots. And so, you know, Brian Armstrong is a very interesting person in technology right now because he's taking on the SEC, not in the traditional manner of behind closed doors, pressing his case, but instead going at them with a public chainsaw. Shout out for that. That's interesting. And this is also kind of cool. So I'm going to say the Musk thing did not help me, but I'm going to give Brian Armstrong five points because I think this is kind of cool and I want to use it. I think the missions agreed with you both on this. It's, a, it's very cool. And if they can get it to work, I mean, obviously that would be incredible. But any company like this, we know this is going to take a lot of years and a lot of money before we even like, you know, 
get close to that. So we'll have to see what happens. You're right, though. I mean, we need the deep pockets to fund that because this kind of research-based company will need a lot of dollars to help it (laughs) fund that research. Yes, but I don't think it's going to take as long as you think because computers have never been faster than they are today. And we've actually managed to take some AI models or, you know, large machine learning models and apply them to proteins, for example, and then a lot of really cool stuff to better understand the inner workings of that. And so my thought is, why wouldn't some of that progress spill over to this epigenetic research and let us move a lot faster? Like the optimistic take here is that we're not going from like strapping feathers to our arms and trying to flap. And then we're going to take, you know, a thousand years to get to the Wright brothers. I don't see why we can't go all the way to spaceships in like 15. Like the technology, if I understand it, that we're applying to this stuff does seem more powerful than ever. So hopefully with this amount of money and and some space to experiment, hopefully we can do a lot quite quickly. I don't want to die much, you know, (laughs) I would like to, I don't want to like hurt my back and be like, well, that's it. My back screwed up the rest of my life. Like I want to be able to just like inject some of my own juice in me and be like, fix that. So (laughs) I'm going to be, I'm going to be optimistic here. I want to go to space and I want to live to 200, you know, like why can't I do both those things? Yeah. I think the real thing that gives me pause about this is like, not the fact that these billionaires are involved, but kind of the company structure. Like I get their point when it was like, oh, the company doesn't have a CEO because we have this group that's working really well together. And it's like, okay, I would get that if this was sort of like an Amorai situation where it's like the company literally just got founded like a month or two ago and they're still figuring stuff out and like, oh, we're working together. We just don't want to decide that yet. That's all good and valid. But this company is now has $150 million of capital and has been around for one and a half years is 17 employees without an actual leadership structure. Like that's where I get worried about how they'll be able to kind of scale and build on from here. Cause even if the research and like their findings are great, they're going to run into those issues down the line Mm -hmm. if they don't Mm -hmm. start figuring that stuff out when they're this small. Yeah. That was kind of odd to read as well. Like to, to see that there was no full-time CEO. Yeah. Cause this seems important enough that you would like hire a full-time CEO if you were, say, a Brian Armstrong who wanted to spend a lot of time on this, but are also, you know, the CEO of a public company. That's huge. A big one. Yeah. yeah. Coinbase has thousands of employees. You know, he's he's a busy boy. And he's also taking on the SEC, which is another large, you know, part of the world. So I think to summarize here, some criticism, some doubts, but I think in general, we all agree that having people invest their capital into life sciences that could lead to improved human happiness and longevity and quality of life is a reasonable thing. It's better than buying a yacht. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. hundred percent. Yeah. Sorry if you're a if you're a shipbuilder in the north of Europe. Sorry, but I don't <laughs> think you're that economically valid. Who all listens right. to equity? What? <laughs> You're a shipbuilder in Northern Europe who listens to equity. This is not a negative for you. Oh, no, no. I was trying to, was trying to say that I hope that more people stop spending money at the famous mega yacht builders. Although I do spend more time on, on Yacht Trader than I want to admit, simply because I like to dream. Okay. Now, we're going to go from the fun to the serious because, Becca, we have a lot of information on how startups are going to be raising capital, but not through equity, not through the traditional fundraise we see from venture capitalists, but instead the wild world of venture debt. And you talk to a bunch of investors, and I want to know what the f*** is going on. Yeah. So venture debt has always been, I've been coming venture debt back to my corporate debt days. Fun story there. One of my best sources is currently serving out his sentence for the Varsity Blues college admissions scandal. So wasn't able to talk to him about this. But venture debt is such an interesting part of the venture ecosystem because I feel like we only ever really talk about it when things start to go wrong. When in reality, 
companies raise debt all the time. It's such a huge part of growing, especially if you're, say, a fintech that does lending or you're a capital-intensive business and climate tech or defense. But it's not as much of the venture conversation until something like this happens, where it's like the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank made everyone start going, oh, like what happens to venture debt now? Something that was just such a constant flow of money. People didn't have issues with it. And so, yeah, we talked to some people about it and found out that they are like, Getting venture debt will look a lot different than it used to, but no one is really that pessimistic about it, which is definitely good news. Can you explain to folks who are less familiar with how Silicon Valley Bank was involved in the venture debt landscape and how after fundraising, many companies would perhaps tack on a little? Mm-hmm. So if you were a company that banked with Silicon Valley Bank, they pretty much required all of the companies they lent to to be customers bank customers. So the traditional Silicon Valley Bank venture debt, which someone described to me as the most vanilla debt, because if you need anything complicated for venture debt, like Silicon Valley Bank wasn't doing it anyway, but they would typically tack on some non-dilutive capital after an equity raise, and they would underwrite it using kind of like the raise you're at and where the business fundamentals were at at the point of the equity raise. So very clean, easy for a startup. You're banking with the same person you're paying the loan back to. Pretty easy system. Lots of companies did this. Like I said, though, this is definitely for the straight, we're raising debt after an equity raise kind of round. Silicon Valley Bank wasn't as flexible with the other types of venture debt, which are definitely not as common. But yeah, so it was a big, big player, especially for US-based companies in this space. One question that I have is, I feel like, I mean, yes, venture debt has existed for a while. A lot of companies have taken advantage of it over the years. But I always heard that like with venture debt, it was more like to fund like you said, if you had a lending business, but not so much operations, is that changing in light of the way the venture market has changed? I don't know if there's any evidence that it has, but I think one of the things someone told me in the survey was that venture debt has always been used to grow the company, not grow the business, not grow your valuation, not grow the equity and the stuff like that in the back end. It's just to grow something specifically. So I know people think of it as fintech's obviously a really easy example for that. But one other thing people have talked to me about is inventory. If you're a company that sells, you do not want to use equity capital to be buying your inventory or sort of building hardware or building very like physical things. Like equity capital is not good Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a good use for equity capital. Right. Whereas debt, it's like you can kind of see the value proposition better of like mm-hmm. putting this capital in, building this thing, selling it, money back, paying the loan back. Like it's just like it's used for more of like the building capital as opposed to like growing the actual company. Like you wouldn't pay your employees with venture debt. You wouldn't use it for hiring. You wouldn't. Right. So it's a little bit more. Not for operations. Yeah. No, it's like the building side of it in the way that companies or even like people, like that's the great way to think about it. Like people take out debt to like pay off a car, pay off their home. It's like kind of equivalent in that way a little bit. Yeah. And we also, we also, we often, we also often and often also see companies that do fintech raise a large like credit facility. I forget the name of the company, but I think it was M. Copa in Africa put together like a quarter billion dollars, but it was like 50 million in equity and like 200 million in like a credit facility for the same reason. Like you don't want to be using your equity capital to, for example, fund consumer purchases that are credit based on your service because that's super inefficient. Right. And this is why, you know, venture debt was so popular. You know, you raise 15 from, I don't know, Kleiner and you tack on 3 million in debt from 
Silicon Valley Bank. Now it's 18. You have more runway. You have more time. And no one really talked about it because it was just so standard. Why would you? But Becca, in your survey, you were trying to figure out like how things have changed. So, you know, are Mm -hmm. we talking about, you know, higher ARR minimums or higher growth requirements, stricter covenants? Like what's shifting today and what might be shifting down the road? What's funny is a lot of the stuff people answered is the kind of things that VCs said last summer they were going to start looking for in companies in a softer market, like better paths profitability, better unit economics, making sure people have a certain amount of like cash runway on hand. If, say, they didn't hit their growth targets, they'd still be able to like pay the loan back, which I didn't believe it when the VCs said it, and then it proved out that that wasn't really how they're investing. But I believe it when it comes to the banks, because banks don't invest as on the vibes like VC sometimes does. So that's kind of what they're saying. Some of them had said they've already started to see pricing for venture debt go up and they expect that to continue. But it's more about, yeah, companies that kind of have the better balance sheets are going to have an easier time getting venture debt. But at the same time, all of the investors said, even as rates go up, they're going to have to go up so much for it to be more expensive than equity that it is still, even if it's a little harder to get, it's still going to be a really great option for the majority of companies who would have taken it on prior to what happened. I just want to ask a question because when I was reading all the survey responses, and we had five different investors weigh in. So it was actually, it's a pretty meaty thing to read through, but I learned a lot. So thank you for putting this together, Becca. I appreciate it. It seemed like we're once again seeing a concentration in capital availability in the startups that were already going to be okay. Right. When we think about who's raising money today, it's like, sure, you know, Series A's are down, but if you're a good company, you can raise, which is always true. But in this case, I feel like another method of getting capital into younger stage startups is being constrained once again to a smaller pool. And so it feels like the overall profile of a startup that can actually succeed in today's market continues to just shrink and shrink, shrink and shrink, shrink and shrink. Yes. And that's a bummer because a lot of folks are at companies that are kind of not quite in that circle of excellence. And so I wonder what's going to happen to them if this also becomes a method of fundraising that is outside of their reach at the exact moment when they need more money. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. I mean, it just, it seems like the higher standards we get, but yeah, I I do worry about the impact on some of these, you know, more earlier stage companies. Yeah, I definitely, based on what they said, I, because by the time this podcast will come out, I had a follow-up story coming out later this afternoon. We're talking about sort of like what we learned about what venture debt can now look like. And it definitely mentioned that younger startups are going to have a harder time getting venture debt with this structure. But it's also going to be the really capital intensive startups and not just say the fintechs that are like we take on debt capital to then lend it out. But defense tech startups, climate startups, startups that just need so much money that are having trouble raising, like you said, Marianne, having trouble raising right now anyway. And they are like, if you're running a manufacturing startup, like you're mainly using debt capital. Yeah. And like, it's going to be harder for them if they're like, say, years away from even having revenue, which in a normal market is totally fine and valid. And that's a great business plan for that kind of a company, but it's going to make it a little harder for them now in the short term. Yeah. Especially if you're trying to found like a company working on like epigenetics to help increase human lifespan, you know, that might be a place where venture debt wouldn't be a great fit, especially if you didn't have like a clear leadership structure, just throwing it out there as an idea. No, I think they've got their own special guidelines for those companies. If it's Silicon Valley Bank remnants, they definitely have a whole playbook for those kind of companies, I would assume. Are you trying to tell me that the super wealthy have a different relationship with their bankers than us peons? Because (gasps) I don't believe you. Wow. Actually, I do believe you because it's true. Right. (laughs) All right. We got to go for today, everybody. But first, a couple of quick shout outs. 
Kelsey, Roger, and Winston, thank you so much for reviewing the show. We appreciate it. Makes us look good on Apple Podcasts, and that makes us look good internally, and then we can get more cool stuff. So thank you very much. Our hearts go out to you and our high fives. And of course, do not forget, TechCrunch is back in San Francisco for Disrupt this September 19th through the 21st. I'm going to be there. Becca's going to be there. Marianne's going to be there. The whole crew is going to be in town for Disrupt. It's going to be an absolute blast. Two things. One, if you're an early stage founder and you have not applied to the Battlefield 200 cohort, what's wrong with you? And two, if you just want to buy a ticket, use the code equity, save 15% off and make the show once again, look good internally. Marianne and Becca, thank you so much. We're back on Monday. Equity, of course, comes out three times a week. So look for us in all of your favorite podcast places. In the meantime, have a good weekend. Bye. 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 Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and thanks to the TechCrunch Audience Development Team and Henry Pickovat, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 